You know, um, some of the feedback I get a lot is, is Dan, you are an amazingly beautiful person with such profundity in, in your teaching, but we could really use, thank you, Brad. <laughs> we could really use some more PowerPoint quizzes. Um, so we're gonna rectify that today. And I, I want you to kind of uh, see if you can guess what these are for. So kind of write down your answers. Is this for virtual reality goggles? Um, let me back up here. Am I on? Anybody have a guess? This is for actually B, to massage your eyes. All right. What is this for? Bedtime cam, scan QR code, speaker for kids, security camera, anybody guess? Yes, security camera it is. All right, got to get some harder ones. All right, what is this for? Eat a food, to knead dough, to massage a cat, to monitor a pregnancy. Anybody guess? Massage a cat? Actually, I have no idea how this works, but that is a pregnancy monitor. Yeah. What is this for? Uh, to keep shoes from stinking, to play music, strengthen your grip, or 80s bow tie? Anybody guess? Yeah, shoes is it. Where did I go? All right, how about uh, this one? To hold spices, to entertain toddlers, to cube an egg, or to store jewelry. Anybody guess? Yeah, well, you know, if you have to cube an egg, and who doesn't, right? This is what you need to do. All right, uh, what is this for? Helps fruits, fruits and vegetables stay fresh, cleaning very delicate clothes, catch your hair before it wants to drain, help with stretching. Anyone guess? I see a few. Yeah, got you on this one. For some of you, anyway. Catch, it's a uh, drain there. All right, what's this for? Curl butter, open bottles, decorate vegetables, torture. All of the above? <laughs> Maybe. It's actually A, you curl butter. <laughs> I don't know why you curl butter, but if you do, you need this. <laughs> what is this thing for? To infuse carbonation in beverages, to smoke food. Chef's torch or torture, I guess. I don't know what I was thinking last night. But... Torture. I'm getting a theme. Actually, this will smoke one little plate of food. Isn't that weird? All right, just a few more here. What's this thing for? Open pistachios? Yeah, I did show you that one. All right, so, you know, because you don't want to get your hands messy when you do this. All right, what's this for to curt omelets vertically, make waffle sticks, play music, or project video? Yeah, I got gotcha. you. It cooks omelets vertically. You put the egg stuff in there, it cooks it right up. I don't know how we lived this long in our life without some of these things. All right, crack walnuts, adjust water flow, prune bushes, or cut bananas? Oh, man, you guys are good on that one. Some people have way too much time. <laughs> what is this for? Oh, I gave that one away, didn't I? All right. <laughs> all right, so I've got one more for you, and this is the most difficult of all. Are you ready? What are you for? Why are you made? <laughs> Here's why I'm going with this. To understand the purpose of something created, 
we must know the purpose of the creator. All those little gadgets, you could use them for different things. Some of them you could probably use to pound a nail in if you really had to. But that's not what they're for. They're designed and created by someone with a purpose and will. Are you that? Have you been designed? Are you created by somebody else? Or are you an accident of molecules and atoms coming together, colliding and mixing at a certain time and gave birth to life? And then the course of history through, again, no purposeful process, but only the accidents of physics, you came into being. Which one of those two do you believe? Because if you believe that you are the purposeful creation of somebody else, then maybe the best thing, the most important thing we need to do is to figure out what that purpose is. And we can't figure out our purpose without understanding his. So Nate and I are going to be going through the book of Ephesians in the next few weeks with this idea that we want to use this book, which is the gold mine of purpose in the New Testament, of explaining that. We want to use this book to explore why God has put us in the church and why God has given us life. And in our future, also, what is our, our afterlife for? What is our role right now? And we're beginning here in chapter one, just like Paul does, with this idea that in order to do that, we first have to know the purpose of God, because everything he does is in line with that. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you um, for creating us for a purpose. We thank you for creating us on purpose. Thank you that we do not have to live as those who view themselves as accidents of time and history. And, but because of your word, we can understand more of why you did create all things, including us. We won't get it all, God, at least not now. The picture is way too big for us. But you gave us these words so that we could understand more. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me to say exactly what's needed and right. And I pray that you would guide each one of us in appropriating this. We may be in the last third or fourth of our life. We may be at the very beginning of our adult life. But each one of us has a purpose for the years that are yet ahead of us. Would you show us, as we think through your purpose in all creation, would you show us more about our role and our purpose for being and to live in line with that? Thank you, Father. Amen. All right. Well, the passage that Laura read before, I'm going to guess you had a little bit trouble following the flow of that. And you're not the only one. Because when Paul wrote this, he's writing in the Greek language, right? You know, this is all one sentence in Greek, which is weird even for Paul. He never does this. But he, he gets so wrapped up in all these interconnected ideas that he gives, us, uh, he gives us one sentence that spans like 11 verses. And so there's a theme going through this, though. There's an interconnectedness that I thought might be best if we kind of broke it down into a little bit of an outline here um, so we could see some of the dependent clauses as best I can understand. And again, some people would go put a different phrase as a different dependent clause. But as we read this and as we study, again, this is what Laura read to us. I want you to notice 
I want you to notice how often he speaks about his plan and choice. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be. So there's a purpose clause. In love, he predestined us. Again, chosen before in order to make something happen. According to the purpose of his will. And then going down. The riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, as a plan for the fullness of time. Now again, mystery, when Paul uses that term, it's, it's different than what we normally think. That means something important about God's plan, which he had not revealed before the cross. Okay, that's the way Paul always uses that word. So there's something he's revealing now through the cross and through the revelation of the New Testament that was not revealed before. And then that last part, in him you were chosen. You were chosen. Having been predestined according to the plan. So you were, you were chosen out of love. But you were chosen also according to a plan. The plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. All right. So, first thing we want to bring out then, if I can find my notes, is that God does all things according to his plan and purpose. As you can see here, all that he's doing in your life, he's doing with wisdom, with a purpose, and it's not just to save you from hell. It's not just to save you from wrath. There is that, thankfully. That God has saved us from condemnation. But he also saves us toward something. And that's what we're going to explore here. I've been reading this uh, biography of, not biography, but a story of Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe and how he, uh, he went from Portugal and all the way through, uh, he found the Straits of Magellan in South America, went through the, the, the Straits into the Pacific. And he was given one goal, one purpose for that, for that mission, and that was to find an east to west, uh, oh, sorry, west to east, a water route towards the spices of, uh, say, India and the Spice Islands. That was his purpose. That was his goal. That was his charter that was given to him by the king who financed this uh, five-ship expedition. You know what? That expedition, in one sense, was an amazing success because they not only circumvented, circumnavigated the globe, but in doing so, they helped us understand really how large our globe was. Nobody thought the Pacific was nearly as large as what they understood. It transformed all that we knew about the globe. It transformed history, transformed navigation, transformed our philosophy a little bit. And yet the tragedy is Magellan never made it home. One of his ships did, carrying the core of his crew. But he died in an island in the Philippines two years into the journey. Why? He had spent some months getting involved in local politics, local feuds, between different chiefs and different islands. And one of the ones that he was allied with decided to go to war against a, a neighboring island and tribe, and he decided to take part of that battle, and, and he lost his life in that. There was nothing in his charter or purpose that said anything about forging alliances, 
making diplomacy. It was all about exploring and getting to one place. But he lost his purpose and he lost his life. He got sidetracked. He was an amazing man, probably the only man who could have done what he did at that time in history, and yet he lost his life because he lost his purpose. God never loses his purpose. Everything he does. And so our goal is to be more like God, the Magellan in this. Now, I want to take a break here before we go on here. God's doing everything in your life according to a plan and a purpose that is greater and deeper than you understand. And that's true of me and that's true of you. His purpose goes far beyond your temporary happiness right now. And we'll come back to this idea. But I want you to, to, to think, as we see right here, all that God is doing is according to this plan and purpose that he has. Now we'll circle back to that idea at the end. But let's go take a, a look where we're going here next. Okay, God's purpose, and this was in your notes. All right, what is his purpose? Why did he make everything rather than nothing? And this is really the ultimate question in philosophy. I, I uh, get to teach philosophy at Indiana Wesleyan University sometimes. And the, the one question that's more foundational than anything else is this. Why is something here rather than nothing? Why is something here rather why is the universe here? And if we're Christians, we can ask that in a different way. Why did God choose to make all things, to make a physical creation? He didn't need it. There's nothing that it adds to God's essential nature or glory. He was perfectly happy and content because he's perfect in all things before he created all things. So why? Why did he make this universe? Why did he make this world? Why did he make you and I? I put it like this. God's purpose and this is kind of the way I would summarize it after eight years of Bible college and seminary and 30 years of ministry, I guess it is now. I would summarize, summarize it like this. God's purpose is to create a realm where his love expands and takes physical shape and to shape and perfect this realm through human partners. God's purpose is to create a realm where his love expands and takes physical shape and to shape and perfect this realm through human partners. Three points here. I want us to really get, get something understood. God's purpose is an overflow of God's love. We'll talk in a minute about the plan of God, which flows from his wisdom, from his purpose. You know, all good plans from, flow from a good purpose, right? A builder will have a plan for a house or an office building or a stadium or a library, but the plan and the purpose of that will depend upon the purpose of the building, what he wants it for. God's purpose is flowing out of who he is. Love is the very nature of God. God's plans are always based upon his heart. His heart and his head are not at odds with each other, right? Now you see Paul mentions that here in verse 7, in love he predestined us for adoption. But I want us to also see this is because the most fundamental thing about the universe is that before it existed, God existed and love existed. In fact, we're told this. Twice we're told through the Apostle John, who, I don't know, I don't know if I'm right on this, I tend to think that the Apostle Paul had the best understanding of the mind or plan of God, but I tend to think that John had the best understanding of the heart of God. I could be wrong. 
The beloved disciple twice tells us this, though. God is love. Notice what he says. He doesn't say God is loving. He doesn't say God loves. Those things are certainly true. But here he is taking a noun and saying this is what God is. And this is the only place in all Scripture he does uh, the, where the Holy Spirit does this with a noun that's not a metaphor. So he'll talk about God being holy as an adjective, but never says God is holiness. It will talk about God being just, but never says God is justice. We could go on through all the attributes of God. There's one noun, though. God is love. God is love. And we see it here. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. And then the next chapter, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. So we're going to talk about, there is a, a plan that we can write about and talk about, but at the heart of this, this is an overflow of who God is. Here's something cool. Did you know that love existed before creation? Well, we see it right here, don't we? He blessed us because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? Well, out of love. We could go a little further, though. In John 17, Jesus prays for us, which is an amazing thought. My prayer is not for them alone. He's referring to them, refers to the original disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, as our brother reminded us, central to the heart of God, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Listen to this language. I in them and you in me. It's almost like Jesus is picturing this, this circle of intertrinitarian love and saying the whole point of creation and redemption is God brings us into that. What a beautiful thought. So that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wait, can you get the, wait, God loves us as he loved Christ. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, here's where we're going, because you loved me before the creation of the world. So before the creation of the world, there is God, there is a trinity, and there is love. Now, in my mind then, that tells me that the whole purpose of the whole thing flows out of that because that is the one value, the one thing that we're told existed before creation began. All right. And this love is going to shape every part of creation. Now, next part here. God's purpose must include humanity's free will with the potential of rebellion, sin, and evil. What I'm doing here is I'm, I'm anticipating an objection. Okay, what if, if God's plan is so good and so perfect, then why is this world so messed up, right? Why are we so messed up? Why is human society? But also, why is the physical creation not quite what it should be in one sense? And the answer is that because the physical, physical creation is linked to us. We are the ones that God wanted to 
image and rule over creation. And when we fell, we took that with us in a limited sense at least. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad, and free will has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? It means us. Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, robots, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared to which the most rapturous love between a man and woman on earth is mere milk and water, and for that they must be free. In my classes that I teach, um, I very often, you know, there'll be some younger people there, and, and so not infrequently, very often there's uh, someone who's engaged. And so when we're talking about evil, and we're talking about this concept of free will, I simply ask a person a question. If you could, would you make it so that person that you're engaged to had to choose you? They had to love you. They had to marry you. They had no choice about it. I had one girl say yes. <laughs> I think she was a little worried. Uh, but everyone else I asked that question to, when they thought through it, they said no. Because that can't be an act of love then if they have no choice. And in the same way, God's allowing us this gift of free will and the potential for evil and rebellion is part of his good plan because there is something greater that that thing facilitates. All right, so let's, let's begin to narrow this down here. All right, what is this plan? We talked about God's purpose. What exactly is this plan? And uh, this is it here. To unite and perfect all things through and in and under Jesus Christ and the new humanity that Christ creates. To unite and perfect all things through and in and under Jesus Christ and the new humanity that Christ creates. This word here, to unite all things in earth and heaven and things on earth, it's a very unusual phrase. But it has the idea of, uh, well, the only other time Paul uses it is when he says in Romans, I think it's Romans 13, he says all of the Old Testament law is summed up or headed up in one phrase, thou shalt love your neighbor. He says that, that takes everything else in. And he uses that same word here. God's desire is that everything is united and perfected and brought under the, the head of one person, Jesus Christ. And, and as the, the incarnate God then to perfect all things under his headship. That's the idea. That includes the dark spiritual powers, by the way, the demonic forces. Because he makes a point here of emphasizing things in heaven and on earth. And uh, in Ephesians, you'll see, well, like the passage our brother Joseph read, spiritual forces in the heavens or in the heavenly places. So this, is a, this includes all things, even dark demonic powers. So how does that work? What's that look like? Well, well I don't have it up there. There is a plan for the fullness of time. So this, this plan is, has stages, as it were. And I put in your, in your notes, in your bulletin, I count at least four broad steps. Obviously, there are sub-points in each one of these. 
Step one is Israel and the preparation for the second coming or for the first coming of the Messiah. So Israel is there in order to be a place where Christ is not only brought forth uh, biologically, but also in a sense theologically, so that he can be understood when he comes into this world for what he is. There's no point in calling Jesus the Messiah when the term has no meaning at all, right? Step two, then, of course, is the first coming of Jesus Christ. So he came, and he taught, and he lived a, a model life, and he died a sacrificial death for you and I. And sometimes we think, well, this is the whole point. No, this is a part of the progression. Step three, the church, then, as the new Israel, fulfilling some of the same roles to be a witness to the world and a place where we help each other become like Christ, and the preparation for Christ's second coming, and then finally, the second coming. The reign of Christ over all things, mediated through the church, his new humanity. Go through that again here. We're going to circle back to this next week. But I want us to see what God is doing. He is creating and perfecting this plan in which all things are headed up under the authority. They're perfected in Jesus. They're united in Jesus. The means by which he does this, the means by which Jesus Christ will perfect all things is you and me. That's what he means. He created Christ to be the head of the church. And then he goes on to say that we are the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I do know that when Jesus Christ returns, he will have a physical body. He will be in one place. But through his spirit, he will also be in all the places where his church is. We, perfected, redeemed, made like Jesus, in relationship with Jesus, a perfect relationship, will be his imagers, restoring the original purpose of mankind to all creation. Now, one last point here, and then we'll get to application. God perfectly oversees the timing and shape of this redemption. God perfectly oversees this phrase. There's a plan for the fullness of time. And that, that phrase, the word he used for plan here, is actually a kind of different word. It actually means kind of this administration. And the way that the New Testament usually uses this term is talking about the physical realm and the beauty of all creation. Here's his point. Does God create and oversee a beautiful, functioning creation? Yeah, he does it perfectly. And in the same way, he's also overseeing and perfecting not only the physical creation, but the spiritual new kingdom that will give this perfection. I want to just show a very small video clip. Uh, Harvard University, in association with the computer software company, made these videos out a few years ago. You don't have to have the music, it's fine. Um, and they wanted to document the life of a cell. You know, through most of human history, we didn't even know there were cells, right? It wasn't until we had microscopes large enough and, and understanding enough to, to understand what's going on. Everything you're seeing here is happening in the cells of your body, every cell of your body, of which there are 
billions. Everything that's happening here, and if I was smarter in this area, I could tell you what each thing represented here. You know, for most of human history, we didn't even know there were cells. And now we're beginning to understand that what's happening in the cell is as is, is wondrous and enormous as what's happening in the physical creation we see with the tides, with the moon and sun and changing of the seasons. It's all inside every cell of our body. We never knew it. Here's where I'm going with this. We are not going to see all the fullness of the plan of God because we are not able to peer that closely into that big of a mystery. But that same word for his creating and overseeing how creation works, that's the same idea that says, this is what I'm doing in all things, in my purpose of all human history, including the purpose of your life. All right. Let's talk about our challenge then. Two things as we wrap up here. <clears throat> what do we do? Well, first, come back next week because we're going to go into a little bit more detail as we talk about the second part of, the, of Ephesians chapter 1. What does it mean that we're the fullness of, of God? I mean, what does Paul mean when he says that? How can I be the fullness of God? We'll, we'll come back to that idea, but the, the main thing to have in our mind already is that each one of us has this calling that in our relationship to God to become like God and then in his likeness to image him, to reflect him to all creation, including each other. The way you do that and the way I do that will be different. We have a common ultimate goal, but our expressions of that are going to be unique. Because anything, anytime we look at nature, we see that God loves, loves uniqueness and variety. Our challenge is twofold. First, to live in faith, even when we do not see the goodness and wisdom of his plan right now. God has an incredibly good plan for you. It is a million times greater than I could explain on my best day. but we don't see it. Why? Because it goes so far beyond our vision, our time, our mental categories, and our natural human sinful nature. God has an incredible plan for you. But if we're just judging God's plan for us on the circumstances of our life, how much pleasure versus how much suffering, how much success, how much failure, we're going to miss it entirely. Because if there's one thing I've learned, it's this. Like any loving and wise parent, God will sacrifice your temporary happiness for your eternal good. And every parent in this room knows what I mean. My kids, you know, when they were little, we made them have milk or water at every meal. Would they have rather had Coke? Sure. <laughs> I mean, who would, right? Why? Why did we restrict them from that? Was it because we didn't want them to enjoy their food? No. It's because we wanted them to have the habits of which their more ultimate happiness could lie. And, uh, and we knew that giving into their desires at the moment. Now, the gap between our kids at age four or five or whatever and the gap of our understanding you know, is, is kind of like this. There is a definite gap. 
the gap between your understanding of your life and my understanding of my life and God's purpose and plan, you know, it, it's like here to the moon and back, right? So God will sacrifice. God will sacrifice your temporary happiness, your temporary ease, your temporary circumstances for a greater good. He will do it every time. He will do it out of wisdom, and he will do it out of love. But you've got to choose to believe that when the chips are down especially and when the suffering is high and intense. You've got to choose to believe that. Last part. So our challenge is to live in faith even when we do not see the goodness and wisdom of that plan. And then the second challenge out of this, and again, this is where we're kind of going in this sermon series, is to increasingly understand and embrace his purpose as our purpose. You don't have to. Like I said, some of those gadgets, they could be used for different things than what their creator intended them for, but not very well. In the same way, you have a choice. You can live so that your purpose is to get more popularity, to get more fame, more achievement, more success, more money, more, more whatever. Or it can live understanding that your purpose is to become like God and in that likeness to reflect his light and image to all the rest of creation in the unique way that he has shaped you and embrace that more and more. That's my challenge to us this morning. Let me give you an illustration of that. It's not a perfect illustration, like nothing ever is. But it, I think it might be able to kind of visualize a little bit. Robert Fulgram, who was a, an author and a pretty good thinker, he writes about a time in the uh, 50s where he was taking a class on Greek culture, and he was actually in, on the island of, of Crete. So uh, Greek culture right there in the heart of Greek uh, Greek land, as it were, it's an island, but whatever. You know where I'm going with this. And he had a professor there, the one who created this institute that offered the class, Alexander Papaderos. Alexander Papaderos lived as a child during the war, and the Nazis and those who were in Crete, uh, the Germans, Nazis and those, the partisans of, of Crete, uh, were at incredible odds. There was incredible violence and incredible suffering. And in the years after the war, decades after the war, there's still that animosity, there's still that hard, hard bitterness of the scars of pain. And he set about creating this institute to help alleviate that. So part of that is he brought uh, students from around the world and from different cultures into this class about the history of, of thoughts and ideas. And he says, on the last session, of the last morning of a two-week seminar, <laughs> Papadaris rose from his chair at the back of the room and walked to the front where he stood in the bright Greek sunlight of an open window and looked out. We followed his gaze across the bay to the Iron Cross marking the German cemetery. He turned and made the ritual gesture. Are there any questions? Quiet quilted the room. These two weeks had generated enough questions for a lifetime but for now there was only silence. No questions? He swept the room with his eyes. So I asked, Dr. Papadaris, what is the meaning of life? The usual laughter and people started to stir to go. But Dr. Papadaris held up his hand and stilled the room and looked at me for a long time, asking with his eyes if I was serious. 
and seeing from my eyes that I was. I will answer your question. Taking his wallet out of his hip pocket, he fished into a leather billfold and brought out a very small round mirror, about the size of a quarter. And what he said went something like this. When I was a small child during the war, we were very poor, lived in a remote village, and one day on the road, I found the broken pieces of a mirror. A German motorcycle had been wrecked in that place. I tried to find all the pieces and put them together, but it was not possible, so I kept only the largest, this one. And by scratching it on stone, I made it round. I began to play with it as a toy and became fascinated by the fact I could reflect light into dark places where the sun would never go, in deep holes and crevices and dark closets. It became a game for me to get light into the most inaccessible places I could find. I kept that little mirror. And as I went about my growing up, I would take it out at idle moments and continue the challenge of the game. As I became a man, I grew to understand that this was not just a child's game, but a metaphor for what I might do with my life. I came to understand that I am not the light or the source of the light, but light, truth, understanding, knowledge is there. And it will only shine in some places if I reflect it. He goes on, I am a fragment of a mirror whose whole design and shape I do not know. Nevertheless, with what I have, I can reflect light into the dark places of this world, into the black places of the hearts of men, and change some things in some people. Perhaps others may see and do likewise. This is what I am about. This is the meaning of my life. Robert Fulgham concludes, he says, much of what I experienced in the way of information about Greek culture and philosophy and history that summer is gone from memory. But in the wallet of my mind, I carry a small round mirror still. <laughs>